You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. morning. If you have a Bible with you and you want to read along, turn to Philippians chapter four. And while you're turning there, I am the Robert that uh, Jared uh, was talking about earlier when he was making that great announcement on crossing kids. I appreciate by the way, you, the way you uh, so eloquently gave um, a reason for why we do what we do there. And so if you are uh, one of those who's interested in serving in that way, and really taking responsibility for your own discipleship to Jesus, then I would encourage you to talk to me maybe after the service is over. So, um, yeah, thank you. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 11 through 13, and then verses 19 and 20. So again, Philippians 4, beginning with verse 11. Paul writing says, I'm going to start, by the way, about midway through the verse, so you're not confused. Philippians 4, 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. If we may pray one more time real quick. God, I want to say that we stand here today or sit here today in need of you. We were made for you. And you're the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. So help us here in these next few moments to hear from you. Help us to embrace your ways and your thoughts as our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to congratulate you on making it this far in 2019. Just a couple days left. And uh, as we get near to the end of the year, I want to encourage you to join me in finishing the year strong. See, I resolved back in January to lose 15 pounds. And I'm happy to say that if I can just knock off another 17 pounds in the next two days... I will have succeeded. So if you're like me, maybe you took a little break from your goals at some point throughout the year. That's when a little motivation from those people that love you the most comes in really handy. So for example, a few weeks ago, my family and I, we were sitting around the living room and we're remembering some good times. We're enjoying some uh, pictures of former vacations and birthdays and first days of school. My daughter, Andy, was screencasting Uh, pictures from her phone onto our living room TV. That's when we ran across uh, this picture here. (laughs) Golly. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) That's me during a family trip to uh, Water Park this last summer in Little Rock. And uh, when I saw that... 
I was mortified. I don't look like that in the mirror. I mean, like, I don't. <laughs> they caught me off guard or used, they're using some kind of app or something to make me look like that. So I was mortified. And, and by the way, it took all the courage I could muster to even show you. Um, but when I saw it, I said, that is it. Something has got to change. And so like that night I got on the floor and I, I knocked out some push-ups. I called and renewed my membership to the gym and I re-resolved to get in shape. But however, this past month, uh, in actually this month in premier magazine, they published this article by some celebrity mega church pastor. He wrote this. We'll throw it on the screen. Here's, <laughs> it's actually a good quote. So, but he it. He says, here's the challenge for 2020. Don't make resolutions. I like that. Make habits. Unlike resolutions, we actually become our habits. There are no changed lives outside of changed habits. And if we want to actually change, we need to take a sober look at what our habits or where our habits are leading us. It's why the great Aristotle once said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. That was Jared Pickney. Well, I have this itch, I mean, this desire, a longing in me for a healthier body. I also have a longing for more money and to go on more vacations. We were reminiscing about Disney World not long ago, and I would love to go again. I have a longing to remodel my house, to buy a newer car, because mine's making noises every time it starts. I have a longing to replace my four-foot-deep Walmart swimming pool with an in-ground pool. Um, I want more. And if we're honest, we can all say that we have this longing in us for more. It could be more respect, maybe more friends, more time off, a better marriage, a better figure, more Star Wars movies. Yet somehow, no matter how much we get of all these things, we can continually find ourselves wanting more. It's like John D. Rockefeller said when he was asked, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more, he said. But this longing for more is not some new kind of fad. It's been a part of the human condition ever since the fall, back in Genesis 3. And so with that in mind, I want to turn your attention to a story where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to go ahead of him into the towns where he's about to go. And he gives them this spiritual, supernatural authority, even over evil spirits. And he tells them to heal the sick. And to announce that the kingdom of God has come near. And so you could say that Jesus sent these people out to live missionally. And then we see in Luke 10, 17, they had gone out, they had done all these things, and they come back bringing this report to Jesus, and they are totally pumped over what has just happened. They are thrilled because they've seen a lot of success. They pray for people, and people are healed of diseases. They've been delivered from oppressive spirits and oppressive situations. And so they come to Jesus as if he wasn't already aware. And they said to him, Lord, guess what? I mean, even the demons, the the devils themselves, even the evil spirits, I mean, they're submitting to us. And Jesus responds to him in verse 18 by saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. And he basically says to them, stop high-fiving each other about it. 
Don't rejoice in these things, but instead rejoice in something else. And he goes on in verse 24 to tell them that there were people before who have achieved their wildest dreams. They've experienced massive success. And he says to them, what you had before you achieved all this cool stuff, what you had before that time is even better than what the prophets and kings had experienced. He says, prophets and kings have desired to see and to hear what you now have seen and heard before you experienced the success. So what Jesus is doing with the 72, 72 disciples, in this instance, he's confronting what the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen calls the life lie. He says, if you take away the life lie from an average man, you take away his happiness. What Ibsen means by the life lie is that everyone spends their years being happy in anticipation. In other words, most of us can actually deal with life when we say, someday I'll be happy. Even if I'm not happy now, but there's this possibility that one day I will be happy. And that is the life's lie. According to Ibsen, he says, if, if I can find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, if I can get professional success, if I can just get this done and make enough money, or you may say, if I can go to this place, then things would be okay. And the life's lie is this, or this, or this is going to make you happy. But then you get there, and you find out, and the life, life's lie is taken away, you lose all your happiness. So fill in this blank. I have to have blank in order to be happy. What would you put there? I mean, if we're being completely honest, what is the thing that if I didn't have that, I would lose my happiness? Well, if you put anything in that blank other than what Paul in our passage today refers to as the secret of contentment, you'll never find the contentment you're looking for. So the To the 72, what Jesus is saying is this, and pay attention. You are at your most vulnerable after your most amazing day. After your moment of greatest success. After making a killing in the market. After the person of your dream says yes. So after an amazing day, you're going to be tempted to hang your hat on that amazing day. Or that amazing experience. But you're inevitably going to find that the happiness that comes from that achievement doesn't last. It doesn't ultimately satisfy the thirst. And so now we have Paul writing this letter to the Philippians from a prison cell. And he says, I have found the secret to true happiness no matter the situation. And so as we enter the new year, I want to talk for a few minutes about contentment. Contentment when you win and you have everything and contentment when you experience loss and have nothing. So let's start with the not so obvious part. I've, I personally find it rather odd that Paul says in verse 12 that I've learned to face having plenty and living in abundance. Like he learned to face it as if it's a burden to have abundance. But think about it. Paul had achieved what we would consider the American dream in his day. He actually wrote about all these successes earlier on in this same letter. Back in chapter 3, you can read about it. He lays out how he came from, from a good family, from good stock. He had the best education available. He had career success. 
He says he was advancing as a young man far beyond all his contemporaries as he was developing as a rising rabbi. He was well known and no doubt he had quite a bit of money. But what Jesus was saying to the 72 and what Paul is now saying to us as the church is this. It is very possible to realize all your dreams and still have you too singing the theme song of your life. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Paul knew from firsthand experience that more education, more experiences, more wealth, more career success are never truly going to satisfy the longings of the human heart. He even feels so strongly about it that he uses a curse word to describe how empty all these things are when compared to knowing Jesus. It's translated in a sanitized way back in chapter 3, verse 8, as rubbish. Or, um, well, if you were Greek and you were to use an iPhone and type in the word that Paul actually used here, this is the emoji you would, uh, you would get. <laughs> Paul says, uh, I consider all these big wins in my life, all these achievements as... Uh, compared to knowing Jesus. You know, the United States in particular is the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. We lead the world in commerce and in consumption. We just got more stuff. If you're business-minded and you want to find a good lucrative thing to do at this moment, uh, you may want to invest in uh, storage units. We just got so much stuff. We're so wealthy as a nation And yet, recently, we ranked 23rd in happiness. And the nations that are ranked numbers 1 through 22 ahead of the United States all have a lower GDP. Many of them are characterized by material poverty. I can remember when we first got married. um, I got a job before our wedding, you know, which I got married when I was 18 years old. And uh, I got a job at Clark's Chapel Baptist Church. And they agreed to pay me $100 a week. And we were pretty stoked um, because that was like a, boy, what a shot in the arm. And when we put that income in addition to my mowing yards income and her Friedman's jeweler income, we put it all together. We were making like 20 to 25 grand a year. <laughs> and I remember saying, we were struggling. I remember saying, because I was going to Williams, you know, driving back and forth. It was hard. And I remember saying, boy, could you imagine if we got to like 30 grand a year? <laughs> could you imagine Eventually we did. And then it's like, could you imagine if we could get to like, where we're making like $40,000 a year, like what we could do. Oh my goodness, life would just, it would be so great. But it's not just money that proves to be a life lie. It can also be the case with fame. So I want you to look at a list of, of these famous people here. You got Ernest Hemingway and Virginia Woolf. They're both very successful novelists. Kurt Cobain Cobain was a successful musician. Robin Williams, an actor. Alexander McQueen, a fashion designer from New York City. David Foster Wallace was a journalist. Vincent Van Gogh, a painter. And Marilyn Monroe, a model. And all all of these famous people had three things in common. Number one, they were all very famous. Everyone knew their name in their day. Number two, they all had more money and things than they ever dreamed that they would have in their lifetime. And number three... They all committed suicide. Actor Jim Carrey says, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. 
Are you familiar with uh, Jesus saying that it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle? He does this in Mark 10. Luke and uh, Matthew, I think, mentioned it as well. But when Jesus says it, disciples are blown away by this teaching that it is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it is for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. He had just gotten done talking with this really rich guy who had come to Jesus saying, like, what what do I need to do to, to enjoy God, to have the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you know, you know all the rules, you know, follow the rules. He's like, man, I've done all that. And Jesus says, well, there's something you're still lacking. Sell everything you have and give it away to the poor and then come follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And the guy walks away sad. And after he walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them, it is so difficult for the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God. And when they heard it, they couldn't believe what they were hearing because To them, the people God loved the most, the people who had the most favor with God, were the people who had a bunch of stuff. Because to them, God was blessing these people. And if God is blessing this guy and he loves him more than me, and this guy can't enter the kingdom of God, he can't get to heaven, then what hope is there for me? And then Jesus says these beautiful words. They're they're asking, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well... With man, it's impossible. But with God, he says, all things are possible. It is possible even for the most successful, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's good news for me. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But it's possible because they may also find the secret to true contentment. It is possible, although difficult, that they find Christ, whose glory makes everything they've ever accumulated or achieved look like rubbish. This is good news for those of you who are listening here today who've achieved career success. Or maybe you just married the man or woman of your dreams, or you're Instagram famous. None of these things are evil. And although none of these things will ever live up to the hype that was promised to you, And they're all going to fail you. There is a God who is inviting you into an all-satisfying, joy-filled friendship through his son, Jesus. It's one of the reasons God commands generosity. It's a way to combat this discontentment with the stuff that we have. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but Paul says that this is the secret. He says, I can face the burden of having all that I ever dreamed through Christ Jesus. So let's put it this way. There was a Disney documentary series. Some of you have seen it called Toy Story. Uh, And in Toy Story, Woody is a toy cowboy who knows better than anybody else what he was made for. Here's a quote from Toy Story 4 where he's talking to Forky. Is that his name? He says, being there for a child is the most noble thing a toy can do. Being there for a child. I mean, Woody knew from the beginning of his relationship with Andy what he was made for. In fact, it was imprinted on the bottom of his shoe. Do you remember what it was? Andy. Woody was made for Andy and would not be happy with anything else. 
Nothing else would, would work. In Toy Story 3, when all the other toys are like, I got an idea, let's go to a daycare. We can be played with there. He's like, are you out of your mind? We were made for Andy. In fact, at the daycare, there was another toy there, if you remember, Lotso Huggin' Bear. Lotso used to be loved by a little girl, and he was so happy and content. And somehow along the way, he got lost and wound up at this daycare. And so Lotso goes through this way of like amassing power for himself and like gaining control of the daycare in order to find that happiness he was craving for, and he was miserable. I know that sounds really silly, maybe. But in the same way, we were created by Jesus for Jesus. We were designed to find our joy in God. And for that reason, we will never truly find it in anything else. That's why it's just no good to go asking God to make us happy in some other way. Like by giving me this or that. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it simply is not there. And just as there's a secret that needs to be discovered when you have everything, there's also a secret that needs to be discovered when you experience loss and face hunger. It doesn't take very long for any of us in here to to figure out that the world we live in is very broken. Diseases like cancer and ALS and Parkinson's, they affect hundreds of people in our own community. We found out this last week, my father-in-law has cancer. My mother uh, just finished a round of chemo within the year as well. Marriages fail. Families are torn apart. We've seen tornadoes ravage entire communities. Loved ones die. Foster care systems filled with kids who have no parents. We lose jobs. We experience sickness. Our cars break down, stuff gets stolen. The world we're in is, is very broken. And because of that, in every culture, there's what apologists and cultural commentators call defeater beliefs. And Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, every culture hostile to Christianity holds a, a set of common sense consensus beliefs that automatically make Christianity seem implausible to people. These are what philosophers call defeater beliefs. A defeater belief is belief A, if true, means that belief B can't be true. And I'll give you two examples. In the Middle East, for example, it is widely assumed that Christianity cannot be true because of a cultural belief that American culture, which is based on Christianity, is unjust and corrupt. And because American uh, American culture is unjust and corrupt, and because it's the fault of Christianity, then Christianity itself must be untrue. Here in the West, however, there's a defeater belief that goes like this. Christianity says that God is both in control and good all the time. However, there's clearly evil, pain, suffering in the world. And so that rules out the existence of a good God. And since God can't be both good and in control, then I'm going to look somewhere else for meaning and for happiness. There was a band um, that I never listened to called the Indigo Girls. Um, any name, anyone with girls in the name uh, or chicks or anything like that, I, I never listened to them. But uh, they were a band. Back, they, they enjoyed some success in the early 90s. And um, 
I think they're still making some music. I wouldn't know. But before they broke out with any kind of success, they wrote this song called Hey Jesus back in 1987. So I want you to check out these lyrics. Hey Jesus, it's me. I don't usually talk to you, but my baby's going to leave me. And there's something you must do. And I'm not your faithful servant. I hang around sometimes with a bunch of your black sheep. But if you make my baby stay, I'll, I'll make it up to you. And that's a promise I'll keep. Then the next day, the next verse, she prays again. Hey, Jesus, it's me. I'm the one that talked to you yesterday. I asked you, please, please, for a favor. But my, my baby's gone away. Went away anyway. And I don't really think it's fair. You got the power to make us all believe in you. And when we call you in our despair, you don't come through. And this is what always happens when there is a life lie in the picture. And it's either denied to us or it's taken away. This is what always happens when we place these conditions on God. When we invent these if-then scenarios. Like, God, if you will do this for me on my terms then I will do this or that for you. And then when we lose our life lie, we feel as if something that we were entitled to has been stolen away. However, if the life lie is replaced with the secret of contentment that Paul's talking about, then instead of feeling like we've been stolen from, we instead have this power to respond as if something has been graciously withheld from us. This is very hard to accept, very hard to understand. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he he said this. He said, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing is necessary that God withholds. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. Everything is necessary that God sends, but nothing is necessary that he withholds. But see, we trust in a God whose thoughts are higher than ours, whose ways are higher than ours. And this God is not unable to sympathize with us. He sympathizes with our weakness because he took on human flesh. He was tempted in every way, like we are yet without sin. And not only that, but Jesus himself has known loss. He's known hurt. He's been misunderstood. Jesus has been mistreated. In fact, he was wrongfully tried. He was killed on a cross. Heck, the the birth we just celebrated this last week. He wasn't even born like, he was born in a manger, like in a, in this place where animals are kept. The king of glory. He was laid in a feeding trough. And so here you have this follower of Jesus, Paul, who's in jail. His best and most prosperous days are Behind him, and the future for him promises an execution at the hands of a Roman Caesar. And we can actually see all this play out in the narrative if we go to Acts chapter 16. We see that Paul is writing this letter while in prison with his friend Silas. And it says that at midnight, in the darkness, facing sure and certain death, Paul and Silas start singing. I mean, they're singing like songs to God. It's their counterintuitive, strange, otherworldly, from a different place type of joy in the midst of that place that caused the one who was holding them behind bars, this jailer, 
to bow the knee to Jesus and find the secret of contentment himself. So you have two people, Paul and Silas, who are in a place of weakness, and you have this jailer who's in a place of strength, and all of them are sharing the same secret of contentment. This is the difference between Paul's faith and the defeater faith. It's these two words. Through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. So I can face being loaded and having all of my wildest dreams come true. I can face that burden through Christ. I can be hungry. I can be in need and about to face death. And I can find contentment again through Christ. So what did Paul see as his wealth or his abundance? It was the face of Christ. Not the hand of Christ. Not all the things that Christ could give him. There was no Lord if then scenarios. No bargains with Paul. What Paul recognized he had was a love for Jesus for Jesus' sake. Not his own sake. There's like a mathematics to this. It goes kind of like this. Everything, everything in the universe plus net plus or minus Jesus, I'm sorry. Everything in the universe minus Jesus equals nothing. Nothing plus Jesus equals everything. And Jim Elliott said it this way. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus said it better. And Paul says it better. When he talks about the secret of contentment being Jesus Christ. So what does Paul mean by contentment? Well, when you hear Paul use the word content, we don't want to confuse it with the word complacent. It doesn't mean that Paul was like willing to settle for less than God's best. Like, so for example, I'm not content with or willing to settle for being like a mediocre husband. Or I'm not content with giving a lackluster effort at work. Or to bring it closer to home, if I'm on the hospitality team, I'm not willing to settle for guests being overlooked. Our pastors are not content with an unhealthy MC. We should not be content with injustice in our city. And not only is contentment not the same as complacency, but this longing that we have for something more is not in and of itself an evil. In fact, while it's tainted through our fallen nature, it's often hijacked by our flesh, we should have in us a longing for more. We long for more of the kingdom of God to break into our city. We long for more people to experience the satisfaction and salvation of Jesus. We long for more baptisms, more MCs, more churches. We long for healthier marriages. We long for foster children to find forever families. We should long for more of the things that God longs for. And all of these little longings, even the ones that are not so holy, like maybe losing 15 pounds, these are all pointing us to one reality. And that is that God has placed in each and every one of us a longing for himself. Paul starts off the letter to Philippians this way. He says that he longs to depart this life to be with Christ. We say, along with the apostle John, as he concludes the, the, the book of revelation, come Lord Jesus, 
Like we long for you to return. We're ready for this to be over. You know what I'm saying? We're counted among those, the writer of Hebrews says, are eagerly waiting for him. So the next time you find yourself wanting another vacation, a better job, more respect, let that serve as a reminder of what or who you're truly longing for. So what do we need then in order to find this contentment? Well, we need what the Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers referred to as the expulsive or expelling power of a new affection. A new affection is the reason why you will never go back to dial up now that you have broadband or for me fiber or why none of us are out there clamoring for a VHS copy of Avatar. Like no one's doing that because VHS is no good compared to a DVD, which at 480p, give me a break. We have Blu-ray now, 1080. Give me a break. We've got 4K you can stream on Netflix. Come on, you know, like I, I'm, I'm done with that stuff because there's something new and better that's got my heart. So what we need is for our view of Jesus, our affection for Jesus, to outshine the life lie that we're believing. So think about this. Like, where do all the stars go when the sun comes up? You ever thought about that? Probably not. But if you look at night and you see all these stars in the sky, this phenomenon happens about 6 a.m. where they all just start to disappear. Now, Is there someone or something in the great somewhere out there that is somehow plucking them out of the sky and hiding them somewhere? Are they going out? No. But the brilliance of the sun is so great that even if you try, you cannot see them. And so to confront your life lie, you need a bigger view of God. Christ has to be more desirable to you than all the stuff or people, or relationships that you're after. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth, and you'll get neither. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these other things that you actually need, and many of the things that you actually want, will be added to you as well. And so if you're like me, you're tempted to think at this point, like, okay, I get it. What I need is to love Jesus more than I love success. Or I need to long for Jesus more than I long for a new car. Like that sounds really simple, but I I have no idea how to do that. Like you're telling me to love Jesus more. How how can you even command that someone loves someone else? Can you do that? Well, God does. So how then can I love Jesus or grow in my affections for Jesus? Well, doing that and confronting these lies with truth. It's a lot like starting an exercise program. It's pretty simple. There's really no shortcut to it. If I really want to lose 15 pounds in 2020, I'm going to need to be prepared to make some simple changes, a few changes to my diet and some consistent time in the gym. But the problem I have is that I do change my diet and I do go to the gym and three days in, I'm like, what the heck? One pound? This is not working. And I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm dumb. I'm, I'm too impatient. And so I quit. 
But if I'll do that, not overnight, but over time, it will make me a healthier person. And if I stand up here on the last Sunday of 2020, then I'll be able to tell you, well, I won't have any pictures like that to show you. (laughs) So here are some simple, super simple things that you can do to stir your affections towards Jesus, to help your view of Jesus outshine everything else. It's not going to sound glamorous. In fact, you've probably heard these things before. And if you've been here for any length of time, you're going to have seen the graphic we're about to throw on the screen. Wow, there it is. The truth of the matter, though, is there's just no shortcut uh, to growing in your love with Jesus. So this is what we call the intentional spiritual formation paradigm. And you'll notice at the top of that graphic, teaching. Like in order for me to grow in my love for Jesus... I have to submit myself to teaching to help replace the lies that I believe about myself, about God, about life, about stuff. And so just like that grotesque picture you all saw of me served as a reminder that I want to be healthier. When we submit ourselves to faithful teaching, we are reminded week in and week out that there is a deeper, more satisfying desire to be had. The second thing we see on the bottom left there is practice, like spiritual disciplines. It's like Jared said, don't make resolutions, but develop habits, practices. A key way to grow in your love for Jesus is by practicing spiritual disciplines. So it's not glamorous, but we've got to do it on a regular and consistent basis. So if we're, if we're sitting here saying like, man, I've been going to church for a long time and like, I, I just don't see Jesus or going to be at church or whatever you want to say is more, is better than like going seeing the new Star Wars. How is that better? Well, a question we might would ask like, how, how intentional are we being at the spiritual disciplines? Are we in the word? Are you reading your Bible? Are you spending regular time in silence and solitude? Are you fasting? Are you generous with the things God's given you? We do these things in order to overpower the life lie that we're believing. Not only these spiritual disciplines that we all can do, but in addition to these, there are some things that you can do on a daily basis based on how you're wired that may help stir your affections towards Jesus. We're going to put our website up here on the screen. There's actually a page, crossingparagold.com forward slash personality. And on there, you can download your Enneagram type. Okay, it's a spiritual formation plan on that page. If you've never taken the Enneagram, you can take it. The link is right there on that page as well. But when you do that, look on that document for your personality type at the downstream practices. These are things that you will personally find energizing because it's just your personality. Okay, and you can do these things, engage in this, and you'll find your heart stirred towards Jesus. For example, me, I'm a seven obviously. And so like celebration, parties, uh, having like deep, meaningful talks, this is energizing to me, as well as like community, being around other people. And these are things I can do with intention uh, to stir my heart towards Jesus. My wife, on the other hand, is a six. And so some ideas for her are like singing, which she's great at, by the way, uh, journaling, meditation on the word of God. These are some things that are going to come more natural and be more energizing and stirring her heart towards Jesus. So I would encourage you to do that. Back to the graphic here. The third thing we see is community. And community, and this is just like, this can be really hard, you know? But it's putting ourselves in an environment with other people who are also chasing after Jesus has this way of like 
rubbing off on us. You know, when I'm around people who talk a certain way, I find myself talking that way. When I'm around people who all like baseball, I tend to like baseball more. When I'm around like my son, Aiden is a huge Grizzlies fan. So guess what? I watch all the Grizzlies games. Okay. It's just whoever you're hanging around with, you find your, your heart stirred for the things that they care about. And so put yourself in Christian biblical community. And we do that here in our church through missional communities. And then finally, we find through the power of the Holy Spirit, not overnight, but over time and through suffering, you will see yourself becoming a more mature disciple of Jesus, more in love with Jesus, and that life lie that you've been believing beginning to fade in the glory that is Christ. But we've got to remember that mature disciples are not made in a day, but they are made daily. Remember in verse 11, Paul said that he had learned how to be content in every situation. It just didn't just come to him like an epiphany overnight. It's not an overnight fix. In fact, the only way to possibly speed up the process is through suffering. And because we need consistent reminders of this truth, because we need to, I mean, like, it's like when we ask the spirit to fill us, we've got to remember we are like leaky vessels. You know, so we constantly need these reminders, this filling of the Spirit of God. And that's why every week we come together to this table. It's just to be reminded that one, Jesus, I need you. I need you in like so many ways. One way I need you is to remind me that these things that keep grabbing my attention are not going to satisfy like you satisfy. I've got to be reminded of that because by the time I get home this afternoon, these other lies that I, these life lies that I am so tempted to believe, they're, they're going to be vying for my affections. And so we're going to come to this table and we're going to take a piece of bread, which is represents the broken body of Jesus for you. And we're going to dip it in the juice, which represents the shed blood of Jesus, that you might enjoy the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And we're going to eat that together and we're going to be reminded that there is a greater more satisfying desire that all these little desires in our life are pointing us to. And if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian or maybe you're new to the church or you're not quite sure about the Jesus, that's great. And we are so thankful that you are here. We, we hope that you feel very at home. We want to remind you though, that like you don't have to, to, to believe before you can belong here. However, there, there are very few closed doors to you, and we just remind, want, want to let you know that this would be one of those. Um, what we would ask if you're not a Christian is that during the time of communion, you just hang out in your seat and maybe just ask Jesus, like, Jesus, are you really more satisfying than finding the man or woman of my dreams? Are you really more satisfying than the career I'm after? And just ask him to meet you where you are. And instead of receiving communion, I would just implore you to receive Christ. And taste and see that he's good. So at this time, we're going to stand. The band's going to come and I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll take communion together. Father, I want to say, you are so good. Just like we sang about earlier today. You're never going to let me down. <laughs> when, my, when my trust is in you, you've never let me down. Father, today as we come to this table, we're reminded of your love for us. You're pursuing, never ending, never stopping, always and forever love for us.
And we're reminded that our hearts were made for you. They beat for you. And so meet us here in this time. Father, if there are those here, can't help but think there has to be some here who do not uh, have that faith in Jesus. They're not, not a Christian. And I pray through your Holy Spirit's power at this very moment that you begin to break into their heart and the truth of your gospel would outshine all the other things they may be trusting in. We pray this in Jesus' name.